today's scripture reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the word of the Lord. It really is. It's great to see you all, but as I was standing there singing, I'm, I was confronted with the, uh, yeah, the blessedness, the, uh, the goodness of God in that he allows us to gather and remind each other of truth and sing to each other about what he's done for us, to sing to him in gratitude for what he's done for us and what he's promised us. It's good to gather with the church. And um, yeah, let's, let's ask the Lord to bless our time as we study his word this morning. Let's ask him to guide us, to hold us by our hands, and to direct us into truth as we study his word. Let's pray. Our Father, as we open up the pages of scripture this morning, we need you. We need you to lead us by our hand into truth. We're prone to wander. We're prone to be distracted by any number of things. We're prone to believe lies and to doubt truth. So lead us. Show us what you have for us today. Show us yourself. Show us Jesus. And give us hearts that are filled with faith and trust in you. It's in Jesus' name that we ask all of this, Father. Amen. Psalm 73, 25, which, uh, which Jay just read to us. Thank you, Jay, for reading God's word. It says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What a, what a declaration of love. What, what a declaration of singular devotion to God. The, the, the one who wrote these words is saying, God, all I have is you and all I want is you. Clearly, these are the words of someone who believed in God, a true believer, someone who is certain that God is good. But, you know, if we read the rest of the psalm, we'll find that he wasn't always so certain. The writer of the psalm wasn't always so sure that God was good. We find that in the past his faith was threatened and he found himself wondering, is God really good? Is God really worth trusting? Is he worth obeying? Is God worth it? That's the question that Psalm 73 drives us to ask this morning. Psalm 73 moves us, it drives us to ask honestly and thoughtfully, is God worth it? In other words, is he worth following is, does following God really make sense? Does it even pay off? Or is it a waste of my life? Is believing the gospel and following God a waste of the years that God's given me on this earth? Would I be better off finding something else to pursue instead of him? Have you ever found yourself asking questions like that? If you're a follower of Jesus, do you ever have doubts about him? 
If so, you're in good company. The man who wrote this psalm, Asaph, had those doubts too. And he wrote part of the Bible. So, so, so that, that's a high standard, right? He's, he was a true believer. He was a, a, real, a real child and follower of the true God, and yet he had doubts. If you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I wonder if maybe it's because you, you're not sure that Jesus deserves your trust and your devotion. Maybe you're still wondering, is he worth it? This psalmist had similar doubts and similar questions, and he didn't ignore those questions. He didn't ignore the doubts. Instead, he confronted them. And, and it's through the process of honestly confronting and wrestling with those questions and doubts that he finally came to the point of concluding, yes, God is worth it. In fact, no other pursuit, no other person, no other purpose in this life compares to him. All the things that distract me in this world are not better than him. Nothing else deserves my lifelong devotion and trust. That's, that's where this psalmist landed. But, but we need to see how he got there. And we need to honestly ask the question with him, is God worth it? And, and you know, this is the perfect place for us to ask that question. In the gathering of the church, this is the perfect place for us to wrestle with the question, is God worth it? And we'll see why a little later. But for now, over the course of the psalm, we're going to see that the psalmist goes through a few phases. He starts out comparing and complaining, and then he starts regretting and rethinking, and finally he starts realizing and repenting. Three phases, and we're, we're, going, to, we're going to start at the beginning, and we're going to go through those phases. It'll be kind of the, the headings for this message. So let's start at the beginning. And let's walk through this psalm. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it. I think you'll find it helpful to follow along as we walk through Psalm 73. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to project verses up here so you can follow along up there too on the wall. So this psalm, it starts with uh, another confident declaration. Look at verse 1. It says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good to his people. But again, there, there was a point where this writer wondered if that was really true. And so he tells us the story of how he arrived at the conclusion that God is good. Look at verse 2. It says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Imagine, imagine hiking a trail on the edge of a cliff in beautiful Westchester County, New York, or wherever you're from, you're, you're, you're hiking along a trail, and it's, it's, it's beautiful, but it's also a little dangerous, and your, your feet start to slip, and you start to, to tumble a bit towards the edge of the cliff, and you're scared. You see that you're close to destruction. That's, that's the image that this author is painting. The psalmist describes himself that way when, when he almost stumbled over the edge and lost his faith. He almost lost his faith in God. He almost fell into total unbelief and his faith was almost destroyed. But look at what it says in the second part of verse 2. 
for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is how he started to slip. This is how he started to lose his faith. It's really interesting. He started comparing himself with others. It's something we all do naturally. I don't think we realize how dangerous it is. I don't think we realize how close to the edge we are when we start comparing ourselves with others. And he began to envy what he saw in others' lives. It says he envied the prosperity of the wicked. That, that Hebrew word for prosperity there, it's really shalom. We're familiar with the word shalom, right? Shalom. Most often in the Bible, it's translated as peace. But here it's translated as prosperity. Both words, whether it's peace or prosperity, they both capture part of what that word means. But shalom is a very rich word, a deeply meaningful word. It means something like completeness, something like wholeness. It, it means to be well in every single way. Perfect wellness. And the psalmist He's looking at people. He calls them wicked people. He's looking basically at people who ignore God or people who reject God. He calls them wicked. They, these are people who dismiss God's commandments. They live as if God is not real. They live as if God's commandments do not matter. These are, as we're going to see them described, they are ruthless people. They are self-promoting, self-seeking people. And he says... Their lives look full. They're, they're, they're successful. They are prospering. They have shalom. They have shalom. In verse 4, he says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That, that means, he's saying, they, they live pain-free lives. They have it easy. And plus, they're, they're well-fed. Fat, by the way was a compliment in the ancient times. If, if most folks in, the, in, in your society are going hungry, then being fat is a blessing. If everyone else is hungry, then if you're fat, you're fortunate. And so he says, that, that's how he describes these people who are rejecting God, who are walking, walking through life as if God doesn't even exist. They are, verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their eyes swell through fatness. In other words, they're so stuffed, so satiated that, that their eyes are popping out. You get the picture here, right? These are folks who have everything. They live comfortable lives. And, and look, rather, rather than, than make them grateful, humbly thankful, Instead, it's only made them more proud. It's only made them more abusive and selfish. Look at verse 6. It says, therefore, because they have all this in their lives, because they're so full, pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. In other words, they don't, they don't even hide their sin anymore. They've stopped hiding it. They flaunt it now like jewelry on a red carpet, or like designer clothes on a runway. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. They, they speak out against God. And, and that also could be translated, really, 
as they talk as if they rule in heaven. They speak with authority as if they are God. And their tongue struts through the earth. In other words, they walk and they talk with an arrogant swagger. So, so picture this image, that image of unjust, self-seeking, comfortable people. That, that image has, has it's consumed the psalmist's mind. No doubt he has particular people in mind. This isn't just hypothetical for him. He probably has some faces in mind as he talks about these wicked folks. He could probably think of names and real-life examples. Maybe you can, too. Anyone you know, personally, who fits this description? Maybe you don't know them personally, but maybe you know them via media. You see them on the TV screen. You see them. You hear of them. Do you ever compare your lives to theirs like the psalmist did? Comparison can be a dangerous thing. No? Comparison can be dangerous. So often it leads us into envy, and eventually it leads us into what the Bible calls coveting, and perhaps even further than that. But beyond just leading us into envy and coveting, comparing is dangerous for some other reasons too. Look at just two things that comparing does here in this, in this passage. For one, comparing exaggerates how good others have it. When we start comparing ourselves to others, we start to, to overestimate how good other people have it. The psalmist says, these, these wicked folks, they're living pain-free lives. They have no disappointments. They have no problems. Really? Is that even true? The fact is that life for those who do reject God is not really as attractive as it might seem. Life for those who reject God or ignore God is not as attractive as it may, as their lifestyle may, may seem to indicate on the surface. From the outside, it can be deceiving. The, the point is simply that comparing ourselves to others, it, it can distort our perspective. And secondly, it can also wrap, it can also warp, I should say, your perspective on what really matters. Comparing yourself to others can warp your perspective on what really matters. Here's what I mean. Um, the psalmist envies the wicked, quote unquote. What exactly is he envying? What does he want as he compares his life to these other people? He summarizes it in verse 12. Look at verse 12. It says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. So what is he envying? It's comfort and wealth. Look at these people. They're so comfortable and they're so wealthy. How about me? Now, now at other times in his life, I would guess that Asaph, being a true follower of God and a wise man, at other points in his life, he probably realized that comfort and wealth are not really what life is all about. Comfort and wealth don't matter as much as some people think they do. But right now, in this moment when he's steeped in comparison and complaining 
about his own lot in life. He focuses on what other people have, namely wealth and comfort, and he's begun to long for it. He wants it. If he was in his right mind, he'd say comfort and wealth are not what life is really about, but right now he's not in his right mind. Comparing and complaining have brought him into this place where he just wants what others have. And we're going to see he's considering giving up everything to get it. I wonder if you can relate to that. I, I certainly can relate to that. Where, where instances where certain things that I didn't, so care, didn't care so much about in the past, all of a sudden they matter to me and I want them. I see others have them and now they matter to me. I've, I've visited places that I can never afford to live. And as I looked around and, and I, I, I saw what people had, what I cared about and what I wanted started to, to change. <laughs> I started to see the, the cars and the homes and whatever it was. Those things didn't matter so much to me before until I started to gaze at them. And I even started thinking, why do these folks have this and not me? Why not us? Why them? You see, comparison is dangerous. We know that. Perhaps you've heard comparison is the thief of joy. There's truth in that. You see why the psalmist said, my feet started slipping. My feet almost slipped because he realized that we stumble very easily from comparison into envious complaining and discontentment and wanting. It can happen quickly. You can slip fast. It can happen in, in, a, in as little time as it takes you to scroll through someone's Instagram. And you see their perfect family. And you see their perfect vacation that you wish you could take. And you see their perfect body that you wish you had. And you start to wonder, why, why them? Why not me? I read recently about a study out of King's University in Ontario, Canada, that uh, discovered that watching HGTV actually leads to sadness. Big surprise, right? Why? Why? Oh, goodness, you start looking at those homes and gardens, and you start looking at what people have, and all of a sudden you start wanting what you didn't want before you turned on that channel. And all of a sudden what you have is not sufficient anymore. The psalmist, he goes from comparing and complaining to regretting and rethinking. That's the next phase he goes into. He starts regretting and rethinking. Here's what I mean. Verse 13, it says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Comparison can cause you to regret your choices <laughs> and to start rethinking your life. You, you, you look at your friend who has what you want. Maybe, maybe they're married and you're not. Or maybe they have a happy marriage and you don't. Or, or maybe they're successful and you're not as successful. Maybe they're just simply liked and respected and you don't feel so liked or respected. Or maybe it doesn't even have to be a friend. You see some stranger on social media who looks happier and wealthier than you and you begin to think, Maybe I should have made some different choices. <laughs> I, I made some decisions, and it's led me here. 
what if I made some different choices? I could be where they are. I could have what they have. Oh, if I could do it all over again, I'd do it differently. Yeah, comparison can cause you to start regret and rethink your choices in life. And in this case, this psalmist starts questioning his commitment to God. He starts wondering, what's the point of trusting and serving him? He, he says, this hasn't paid off. I'm, following God has gotten me nowhere. There's so many people in this world that they, they deserve to suffer, but they keep getting blessing. And, and I deserve blessing, but I just keep getting suffering. From his perspective, the rich just get richer, the poor get poor, God, good guys finish last. He's tried to be a good guy and it hasn't worked out. So what's the point? What's the point? And he starts to think, perhaps I've made a horrible mistake when I chose to follow God. He transitions into a third phase. He starts out comparing, complaining. He starts regretting and rethinking his life. But finally, he comes to into a a season of realizing and repenting. You see, he reaches a turning point. He begins to realize that, that his perspective was wrong all along. And he repents. And repent, it's a Bible word, it simply means to change your mind. It means to turn around. Change direction. It's a change of perspective and a change of direction. He says, my perspective was, was way off until, until, look at verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Hmm. These people he's been envying, he starts to see them differently. And notice in this moment of realization, it's not like his life has changed. His circumstances haven't changed. He's the same guy in the same, maybe, dead-end job with the same problems with the same needs but his perspective has switched in part in part his focus has turned away from the temporary and he started to look at and think about the eternal he says i saw their end i saw the destiny of the people that i envy he stopped looking at just their their present experience and he started to look at where they were headed. And finally he saw that what he was envying was not, in fact, shalom. He thought it was. He thought it was complete wellness, wholeness, completeness, and real peace. But he realizes it wasn't. He started to realize that some folks who ignore God and reject God, they, they may have influence and money and comfort and lots of good things, but the psalmist says to the Lord, verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You set them in slippery places. In other words, your judgment is on them. You, you are already dealing with them. It's just they haven't realized it yet. You make them fall to ruin, he says. Isn't that interesting? They fall to ruin. They're in slippery places. It's a callback to verse 2. It's a callback to the beginning of the psalm. He says, I, I began to slip until I realized that the people I was envying, they're the ones who are really slipping. 
There on the precipice, they were about to slide and tumble to ruin. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He's saying, I I realize now that no no matter what temporary abundance these folks have, everyone, everyone who rejects God will ultimately experience destruction. So, so that what makes them enviable now is going to disappear. It's going to disappear like a dream in the morning, he says. Have you ever had a dream that you enjoyed? But as soon as you woke up, you tried to recall it, you couldn't? It was gone. And nothing you could do, I don't know, maybe hypnosis or something to bring it back. But it seems like it's gone forever. And, and you're trying to grasp at it and it keeps slipping. And you've got little, little details and you're trying to, ah, ah, it's gone. So it is with the enviable lives of those who walk apart from God. They're swept away and gone. This means, on the one hand, that there will be justice. Genesis 18 asks, will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And and this psalmist right here, he's finally realizing the answer is yes. Yes. There is a reason that Psalm 37, not 73, which you're studying, but Psalm 37 says, don't envy the wicked, for they will soon fade, disappear. So yes, in one sense, the psalmist is realizing that there will be a final day of accounting, a day of reckoning. Everyone will be held accountable for the way they've lived their lives. And this realization, it it led him to repent. That is, it led him to change his mind and change his direction. Look at verse 21. It says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He's saying, "I, I was... I looked around, I looked at my own life and I looked at the lives of others around me and it discouraged me. I felt so resentful because of what I saw. And I responded like an idiot. I was dumb, Lord, he says. Until, until I entered your sanctuary and came to my senses. I want to invite you to think about what that means. Think about what it means when he says, I entered your sanctuary. I mentioned at the outset of this message that this worship service is the perfect place for us to ask the question, is God worth it? Here's why it's the perfect place. Because it was in the process of worship that this psalmist came to his senses. You see, the sanctuary of God, that's the place where God's presence was. It's the place where God's people would gather to worship him and meet him. At the time when this psalm was written, it would have been the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a, a large tent of gathering. It was a holy place. And, and in, the, in the holiest part of that holy place, there, there was an, a room. And in that room, there was the Ark of the Covenant. There were two tablets that, that had engraved on them the laws of God. There was an altar of sacrifice in there. It's a place where animal 
offerings were made, animal sacrifices were offered up to God. There was a mercy seat in there. It's a place where blood from animals was sprinkled once a year on the Day of Atonement. Here's why all that matters, because all those things that, that are there in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, in the holiest of holies, all those things were signs of God's covenant promises and God's covenant curses. In the, in the sanctuary is where someone like Asaph, Asaph, by the way, some people believe that he was a priest. He was certainly descended from priests tribe of Levi, and he may very well have been a priest. So he may very well have had up-close interaction with the mercy seat, the altar of sacrifice, that holiest of holies, because only the priest could go in to that space. In any case, all of those things that were there, present in the sanctuary, were reminders of God's law and God's grace. Here, here's, here again is why that matters, because whether it's the, the altar of sacrifice the mercy seat, God's laws on these two tablets, all of it, all of it, tells us that, one, we are wicked. We are wicked. You see, the psalmist here is comparing his life to the wicked. He's complaining about the wicked and all the things they have. When we go into the sanctuary, we realize, well, we're not so different, are we? We are not so different than those that we look at and say they they live as if God is not real. They reject God. They ignore God. How about you? How about me? Do we not reject God and ignore God at times? In the sanctuary, he was reminded, I am wicked too. He was reminded that no one is pure in heart, not really. But, but, but in the sanctuary, he was also reminded that God forgives, that God atones for sin. He, he cleanses us. He makes us pure in heart and he welcomes us. You see, that's what this psalmist encountered when he went into the sanctuary. He was reminded of his true state. He was not good. He is not entitled to good from God. He is not somehow deserving of blessing. But simultaneously, he's reminded that God is gracious, and he forgives, and he cleanses, and he welcomes Now, for us as New Testament believers, there's no tabernacle or temple for us to walk into. But we do gather as a church, don't we? Just like the people of Old Testament Israel did, we gather as a church. And when we gather, what do we do? We we hear and we read and we sing of God's covenant promises. He promises to be here with us, present when we gather And when we gather, we don't offer blood sacrifices, but we do celebrate the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus that atoned for the sins of everyone who believes in him. And when we eat the bread and drink the cup, which we'll do in just a moment, we remember his body that was offered up, and we remember his blood that was spilt to forgive and to cleanse and purify us from our sins. And and God himself promises that he will be present with us by his spirit in that sacrament of the bread and the cup, the Lord's Supper. He promises that he'll be present with us by his spirit in this gathering. We are in the sanctuary. 
I, I'm not talking about this room. Because we can be in this room, we can be in another room, we can be outside. I'm calling it the sanctuary because we are present as God's people. And where God's people have gathered, God promises to be. That makes it a sanctuary. Corporate worship is the sanctuary. Corporate worship is where we encounter God's presence together. It's where we together are reminded of God's promises. Corporate worship is where we are together reminded of the cross. Reminded that Jesus died in our place to atone for our sin, our failures. We're reminded that we don't deserve any of what we have any more than the quote-unquote wicked do. We're reminded that we're not entitled, that any good we have from God, and we have so much good from God, it's all grace, it's all gifts. Corporate worship is where we're confronted with reality, where we hear and read and sing truth, and we're reminded of what is truth. Corporate worship is where we bring our doubts. Have you ever, have you ever walked into a corporate worship gathering doubting and questioning and walked out a little bit more assured, a little bit more firm and strengthened in your belief in God? Just as you've heard others sing and you've sung together and you've heard God's word and you've read God's word and you've prayed together and you walk out thinking maybe, maybe this gospel is true after all. What are you doing with your doubts? We all have them. What are you doing with them? Are you stuffing them down and ignoring them? Are you giving into them and walking further and further away from God? Slipping off the precipice, as the psalmist would say? Or, or are you bringing your doubts to God in the sanctuary when you meet with him privately and when you meet with him as a church, with the rest of the church? Because this place, as we gather together, corporate worship is where our minds can be renewed, where our doubts can be settled. Corporate worship is, is where we remember and we declare that God is, in fact, worth it. He really is worth it. I, um, I would encourage you to gather with the church with this in mind. I'm going into the sanctuary. Again, it's not this building. The sanctuary is the gathering of God's people to draw near to Jesus, to draw near to the God who made me and saved me, and to hear from him what real shalom is, what is true. I want to encourage you to keep gathering Keep meeting with Jesus on your own at home, but keep gathering with the church. Get here early. Prepare your heart. Sit here and pray. Listen to the call to worship as someone like Alex today gets, it's ironic, I'm telling you to get here to listen to the call to worship. I was late today. My wife's away at Camp Impact. I'm a single parent this week. I just got two kids. She took three of them. I only got two, and I'm already, I feel like I'm 10 steps behind. I was detangling hair this morning like a mad, not my own, obviously. I was detangling hair. It was, it, it was hard trying to get these kids ready. In any case, make it your, your yeah, so my, my point is I say this humbly because I, I stumbled in here late. I want to encourage you, get here early on Sundays. Listen 
listen to the voice of God as he speaks to you from the get-go of the service and see and see if your doubts are not addressed. See if your questions are not responded to by the Lord. Let's just see how the psalmist closes out here and then I'll sit down. In a nutshell, he says, after all the obsessing about all the other people that I've been looking at and all the things they have, he finally lands here. He says, God, I have you. Now and forever, I have you. Look at, look at verses 23 to 26. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Hmm. You see, the psalmist is doing some comparing, but he's doing comparing from a different perspective now. He's comparing himself with those who don't know God, but, but his mind is set right now. This man was confronted with the blessed reality of knowing God personally. He realizes that I get to to enjoy this unbreakable covenant relationship with my maker, with, with my father. He says, verse 24, you guide me. That means right now you're guiding me. And then when my, when my flesh and my heart fail, in other words, when I die, which all of us will, you will welcome me forever. Which means that even now if I suffer and, and it hurts so much, you're holding me, you're with me, you're even instructing me, you're teaching me to see the passing nature of this world's trouble and the passing nature of this world's comfort. You're teaching me to see the surpassing value of knowing you. He says, you are my portion forever. You are my portion. When God's people came into the promised land, they were all given a portion of land. They were all given a portion, a plot. That plot meant a lot. Land meant everything. It meant you had a place to live. You had something to pass on to your family. It means that you have significance. You really exist because you have this plot of land. He says, you, God, you are my portion. In you, I have wealth. In you, I have a place. In you, I have purpose. In you, I have significance and an identity. If you have believed in God's promises in the gospel, you have a future. And that future makes whatever affluence you can accumulate in in New York or anywhere else in this world look really, really cheap. It looks lame compared to what you have in Jesus. The glorious weight of all of this, it drove the psalmist to think, what in the world was I thinking? Brothers and sisters in Christ, have you ever found yourself asking, is God worth it? If not, maybe one day you will ask, is God worth it? Maybe, maybe your foot might start slipping in the future. You know, 1 Corinthians 12 says, or 10 says, if, if anyone stands, take heed lest he fall. So if your faith is strong right now, you know that God is good. Take heed. Be careful. You can slip too. The psalmist was convinced of God's goodness and worth until he wasn't. So know this, know this. 
whether you are struggling to trust God or not, what you have in Jesus is real, and it's permanent, and it's worth more than all the world. Verse 27 says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I found shalom. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That I may tell of all your works. If you have not yet come to trust and follow this God, please consider carefully the observations of the psalmist. We are all being told what's valuable. We're all being told what's good. We're, we're, being, we're being told on a regular basis what shalom looks like. It's being held out to us by advertisers and marketers and others. Here you can have shalom. You can have wholeness and goodness if you'll just buy this, do this, get this degree, choose this career, find this relationship, etc., etc., etc. But listen, if the good that you are chasing and banking on is temporary, you're being misled. Jesus once asked the question, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? It's not worth it. It's not worth it, but what God offers you in himself is lasting. And if you trust in him, there will be suffering, there will be doubts along the way, no doubt. But finally, you will testify, like the psalmist testified, it was all worth it. God is worth it. And so as we close, I want to remind you that we lose our perspective, and you probably know this, we lose our perspective very easily, don't we? Especially when we start looking at others and we start comparing. Whether it's on social media or HGTV or wherever, just go, leaving your house in the morning, wherever it is, you start looking at others. And it's, it's kind of like the opposite of the sanctuary, you know? Whether you're looking at Instagram or whatever, what you're getting is, 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 is the opposite of the sanctuary. You're being told what's fake and phony and fleeting, and it's being held up to you as shalom. The antidote for all of that is worship. It's a sustained focus on God, on who he is and what he's promised. The antidote for dissatisfaction, the antidote for envy and doubt is in the sanctuary where you see what is true and what is timeless, and what is truly shalom. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to you for speaking truth to us and revealing truth to us. But we confess that we are easily and quickly led astray. We ask that you would keep us in the sanctuary of your presence meeting with you, talking to you, gathering weekly with your people here on Sundays, gathering with our small groups, gathering with our CGs, our, our discipleship groups when the season starts, talking to our families about who you are. Keep us in the sanctuary, Lord. Keep us near to you, reminding us of who you are and what you've done. Protect us, Lord, from slipping and sliding off the precipice into doubt, comparing and complaining 
and coveting. We ask, Lord, that you would be the ultimate desire of our hearts, that we would want you more than the things that you can give us. We confess, Lord, that sometimes we want what you can give us. We, we ask for stuff, and when you don't give it to us, we start to wonder if you're really good. Oh, Lord, we ask that we would see, like the psalmist, that you are the best that heaven has to offer, that there is no good that exceeds you. Help us to find satisfaction and wholeness, true shalom in you. Amen.